Hello, I'm Michael White, and this is the Guardian Daily Podcast. I'm standing in the central lobby at Westminster, the heart of the Gothic Palace of Westminster. It's always noisy, but uh, you can hear from the echo. A lot of people here. Earlier in the day, the Queen came to the Palace of Westminster, her annual visit, turns up at the House of Lords. Black Rod walks down past where I'm standing. People see it on the television. Bangs on the door of the Commons. Is turned away symbolism, I'll come back to that eventually let in, MPs follow him back to hear the Queen's speech and that's what happened this morning, as it does, uh, start of a new session of Parliament, this is a new Parliament as well of course, every session we get the annual programme, the Queen's speech My government's legislative programme will be based upon the principles of freedom fairness and responsibility The first priority is to reduce the deficit and restore economic growth. We'll hear in this programme from MPs, of course. I think there's uh, a place for tradition and there's a place for modernity. And uh, what's important is that Parliament continues to respond to the key needs of the communities that we're all here and elected to serve. But also from the Guardian's expert commentators. They can't all happen at once. But I think the ones that go forward will pass. Uh, There's a majority in the House of Commons for this legislation. It will will go through. And, And it's going to be an extraordinary thing when it does. Well, as you've heard, this is a day of um, ceremony and symbolism. Why is the Queen's representative kept out of the House of Commons? Because in 1642, the King made an ineffectual attempt to sweep and uh, arrest the parliamentary leadership. John Pym, but not Oliver Cromwell, as was shown in the movie. It wasn't Cromwell, it wasn't important at that stage. But ever since then, the monarch's but not been allowed in the chamber. Uh, and by the same token, a government whip is always left at the palace as a hostage for the uh, Queen's safe return to her palace. I think they give them a glass of sherry and put their feet up and watch, watch it all on the telly. Uh, uh, and there's, there's meaning behind uh, this symbolism. It annoys some people uh, when Black Rod came into the Commons uh, as he always does this year so Dennis Skinner, the Labour left winger who never follows colleagues down to the Lords to hear the Queen, had a little quip ready Mr Speaker the Queen commands this honourable house No royal commissions this week (laughs) to attend Her Majesty immediately no royal commissions uh, this week, he uh, joked as Black Rod paused mid-sentence, or rather Black Rod's deputy, since Black Rod is apparently unwell. Uh, and Dennis Skinner does that every year, so in a way he's part of the Constitution too, the great Skinner of state. He always has a joke uh, about tights or something unkind. Uh, a sort of festive mood uh, here today. There's um, new MPs' wives and husbands, and they're all looking rather smart. You can tell by their hats it looks a bit like a, a wedding. There are children here of all ages and sizes and of course peers get up in their uh, uh, charming or silly delightful outfits, those red robes with ermine and they don't wear coronets anymore as they used to do security's very heavy, there are sort of lunchtime drinks parties going on and the... Um, at the same time, serious business going on. I've spotted David Miliband talking to Andy Burnham. Uh, they're both candidates for the Labour uh, leadership. Ed Miliband whizzed through at gate speed on his own. So, um, as always, the mixture of pomp, pageantry, and beneath it, the serious business. Legislation will reform financial services regulation. 
My government will support investment in new high-speed broadband internet connections. My government will modernize the Royal Mail in partnership with employees. My government will limit the number of non-European Union economic migrants entering the United Kingdom. My government will remove barriers to flexible working and promote equal pay. Legislation will be introduced to enable more schools to achieve academy status. Let's see if we can find Guardian sketch writer Simon Hoggart. He's an old lag. See what he makes of the show so far. Well, Simon, you must have seen a few Queen speeches. How did this one compare with the usual? I wouldn't say I've seen as many as the Queen, but it's getting that way now, or at least it feels that way. Uh, it was slightly better English. It was in a language approximating to our mother tongue, I felt. Uh, in the in past, contrast to whom? And it, well, in the New Labour era, it always sounded as if it had been written by the bastard son of Alistair Campbell in a BBC mission statement. But this was, uh, it wasn't exactly interesting or exciting. We'd heard it all before. And you wonder why poor this poor elderly lady is dragged into what must be a very comfortable coach all the way from Buckingham Palace um, without the use of the tube uh, in order to read out stuff that has already been in the Sunday papers but you know that's ritual that's um it's the tradition it's the tradition the only difference is that she's getting older and um, you know she's 84 Phil um, her husband is what is he 90 now isn't he poor old soul indeed yes I'll tell you who did look very old was Margaret Thatcher who slept through a large part of the speech she was um, uh, sitting next to Tom McNally now Tom McNally is a, a chap who used to be uh, an aide to Jim Callaghan now that's going back a long way anyway he was sitting on the left of Margaret Thatcher and um, being very animated he kept talking to her uh, she closed her eyes which I assumed was simply a way of um, Stopping Tom McNally, really. Stopping Tom McNally, yes, that's what it does. You know, if a, a bore gets you in a train and you pretend to sleep and uh, in order to discourage him or her. Uh, but I, it seemed to be genuine sleep because I noticed while the Queen was speaking, 90% of the peers were gazing at her and her sparkling crown and he, uh, uh, the other 10%, uh, were gazing straight ahead or in some other direction. Margaret Thatcher had her eyes firmly closed, and I think that maybe made me feel m- m- very much that we'd reached the end of an era. We, Margaret Thatcher had no interest in the Queen's speech. Now for more of what we've heard today about the 22 new bills, let's go back to the Guardian HQ, where John Dennis has been hearing from columnist Julian Glover. OK, Julian, well, how radical is this legislative programme? It's pretty extraordinary. I think it depends where you start from. If we'd just seen this Queen's speech out of the blue, we would be pretty astonished. We wouldn't really believe it involved the Conservative Party for a start. We'd be looking at things like the AV referendum. We'd be looking at the Great Repeal Act. We'd be really wondering which party put this forward. If we'd seen it before the election, we wouldn't have thought it was a Labour one. There's a lot of anti-state individualist legislation, a lot of civil liberties, a lot of the things that people didn't like about the Labour government and are being repealed. But there's also things we never expect a Conservative Party to do. And so... It's a really remarkable amalgam of different parties' liberal values. As to radicalism, I think it's extremely radical on civil liberties and individual rights. Can the coalition government carry with them uh, Tory and Lib Dems who maybe uh, don't like some of the stuff in this programme? Well, the, the journey to this point is worth looking at. A few weeks ago, we thought we'd get a Conservative government. We didn't really think Cameron would do some of the progressive stuff he claimed to believe in opposition. Then we had the coalition deal, which we never expected to happen, and, and we thought, well, the Lib Dems won't get their things through. Now we've got a Queen's speech that really does list a series of radical bills, and we're beginning to worry, well, maybe Tory MPs won't vote for it, or the House of Lords will block it. And of course they might, and not all of this can happen at once. And, and that's one of the risks of this bill, this, this, this speech, is that the bills are very ambitious. There's a huge range of things. They can't all happen at once. 
But I think the ones that go forward will pass. Uh, there's a majority in the House of Commons for this legislation. It will, it will go through, and, and it's going to be an extraordinary thing when it does. Uh, John also heard from The Guardian's leader writer, Tom Clark. OK, Tom, well, actually, let's begin talking about wh- where do you see the tensions between Lib Dem components of this legislation and Conservative parts? I don't see massive tensions in this programme, but I do see that there's some measures where they've both got um, a, a bite of the cherry. I mean, um, there's some stuff on immigration, which was overwhelmingly, for example, a conservative measure. On the Liberal Democrat side, there was Nick Clegg's so-called Great Repeal Bill. We wait to see exactly what it will repeal, but the idea is it will restore liberty. And this is very much a Liberal Democrat hobby horse. And then there are some bills, like perhaps the most important of the lot that was unveiled, is this parliamentary reform bill, which is going to contain both slivers for the Liberals and for the Conservatives. So it's saying, yes, we'll have a referendum on changing the voting system. But at the same time, it's saying we'll reduce the number of parliamentary seats, which all the experts say means abolishing not Conservative seats, but Liberal and Labour ones. So you can see where that half of the bill's coming from. Back here in Westminster, I've been catching up with MPs during the day to get their views on the proceedings. First up, veteran Labour MP Gisela Stewart, who held her Edgbaston seat in Birmingham against most expectations. What do we make of it? Extremely ambitious. Devil is as ever in the detail, but I think there, there, there are some things which, you know, I think even as an opposition we can support. Such as? Oh, I mean, I, for example, approve of uh, the, that aim to reduce the taxation threshold and actually take a whole lot of people out of paying any tax at all. I think that was something which was on my personal manifesto for Edgbaston, so I think that's good. There are some things on the constitutional changes, you know, like the 55%, which I would strongly oppose. And I'm rather interesting that they're coming back to the Kalman uh, uh, report and looking at what's happened to devolved administrations and how that funding will work. I think that's going to be quite an explosive issue. Well, because the coalition's got about seven or eight hundred million out of uh, Scottish and Welsh funding, it'll be the headlines in uh, Cardiff and uh, uh, Edinburgh today and Glasgow, no doubt. Uh, but we don't notice it here in the soft south. Uh, Calman is about changing the tax base for uh, Scotland, the ability to raise their own revenue, is it mm. not? Yeah, and it's going to be very interesting of how the, the you know particularly the particularly the Scottish nationalists uh, how they combine their aspirations to make their own decisions. Uh, but at the same time sort of rather relying on the English taxpayer to fund it. And you represent a, what we used to call a Middle England seat, a Middle Britain seat. Do people notice this in Birmingham and Edgebaston? I think there's a sense of the, 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 the fairness. And in the West Midlands, to be fair, essentially for every pound of tax you raise, we you get a pound worth of, of public services. But yes, it's something they're aware of, yeah. Now, we're moving along the corridor. Gisela Stewart's still talking, just said something interesting. You expect to see, what is it, a complete realignment of British politics? Yes, I do. I mean, who, who does the traditional Tory voter vote for? You know, traditional Tory, which is small government, low taxation, but what Cameron's programme is putting forward, that is not a traditional Tory. What's happening to the lib part of the Lib Dems, which I was used to describe as bullshit Tories, uh, and, and I think what... what if, if, if you mean the li- more libertarian side? Yeah. So, same with the leadership election here on, on the Labour side. And I think I'm just on my way to pick up my 24-year-old son. To him, the terms left or right mean nothing. He's grown up post-Thatcher, post-1989. Uh, I think he, this generation will require new labels. And what's happening here is this kind of realignment, which will, I think, end up with new labels. And, you know, people suddenly finding themselves in, in, in different parties. So what sort of party structure would you envisage in five or ten years' time? 
ooh, they never ever try and predict. But but what I'm saying is that the parties of the centre ground, you know, suddenly we're all three in the centre ground, and that's getting pretty crowded. You came here as a student from Germany 30 or 40 years ago, whenever it was. Do you see any parallels? Some of your colleagues say we're watching the Europeanization of British politics into uh, uh, more um, coalition politics and other ideological ramifications. The real difference is that Anglo-Saxon politics was a battle of ideas. You know, you put this notion forward, the other one opposes it, and then the vote which takes its place is saying which ideas prevail. European politics always thought that provided you talk about it long enough, the right answer will emerge. And in that sense, that coalition government we've got at the moment is a Europeanification of British politics. And here's Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, energetic MP for Islington North and a harbinger of spring. At this time of year, he always moves into his sandals and sure enough, he has today. I love the contrast of it. I've just been out there and took a photograph of um, looked to me like um, some kind of guardsman. I'm not too good on my regiments. Parading rather bizarrely northwards up Whitehall past the peace camp in uh, Parliament Square with a very large banner behind them saying bring the troops home alive from Afghanistan and I think the, there's something good about our society when we have a peace camp in the middle of Parliament Square on the day of the state opening of Parliament so the Queen for the first time in her life has to go past a demonstration that is not the first time in her life she's been around a bit, but it's interesting. The peace camp was uh, raided this morning, I think. The police were sort of checking tents for nasties. I didn't know that. Um, I hope they've allowed... I've it on BBC Radio London, so it must be true. Absolutely, must be true. Uh, if they have raided them and they've been over heavy, then I would be disappointed in that. I think it's quite important that we allow the right to protest and the right to demonstrate outside our parliament, as most parliaments in the world does. Even the White House has a, a peace camp outside it that's been there for, a, from my memory, at least ten years. As I wandered in the central lobby, I spotted a very familiar figure from the past, Lord Nigel Lawson, former Conservative Chancellor under Margaret Thatcher, and nowadays, of course, much more famous for being a very celebrated cook's dad. Nigel Lawson, former Conservative uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Do you feel the uh, government's got off to a, a good start on the economic front? They have said the most important thing that they could say, uh, which is absolutely right, that getting the deficit down and big time is the number one priority. That's because we've got to keep interest rates low and we've got to keep Britain's credit worthiness high at all costs. Because the deficit is unsustainable and if the markets, certainly if the markets think that we're not serious about getting it down, then this, we have to finance it. We are dependent on the markets for the finance. We have to go to them. It's not because you worship the markets. It's because that's where the money comes to finance the deficit. And the rate of interest we'd have to pay would be very much greater if the markets begin to think we're dodgy. Look, what, look at Greece, for example. When you first came into government uh, as a young man, things that the world was much uh, more stable in a sense, uh, much more sluggish too, uh, fixed exchange rates, that sort of thing. The government, the Treasury team, of which you will remember, did away with that. But the way in which global markets work now must be much harder than when you were in number 11 Downing Street, aren't they? 
maybe, but it's a matter of degree. I mean, you couldn't disregard the markets then. No. The markets were, were pretty important then. And indeed, when we came in, as you will remember, Michael, in 1979, our immediate in-year cuts were substantially bigger than the cuts that have been announced so far. So this has to be a what has been announced by uh, George Osborne uh, only yesterday. This has to be a earnest of much, much more substantial cuts, which will have to come in the June budget. What percentages are we talking about then and now in terms of uh, what needs to be done, in your view? Uh, what uh, has been announced uh, this week is in-year cuts this very year of a little bit over six billion, which is less than one percent of total public spending. Uh, when we came in, we uh, announced cuts of in-year cuts immediately in 1979 of uh, four billion, uh, of which okay one billion was sale of BPS shares, but there was three billion of public expenditure cuts, and that was over three percent of public spending then. So we made a big start, we continued in 1980, and then it had to to do more, both on public expenditure and tax in 1981. And the reason why it was so controversial in 1981 was because then we were really in recession. Unlike now, when uh, we are uh, on the road to recovery. That was deemed to be a counterintuitive thing to do yeah, because was, traditionally you uh, spent your way out of a recession. That's right. That was the that's point. Right. And 300... I've still disputed that issue, is it not? I've bumped into economists who say you were wrong, you made it all worse. No, the, the evidence is clear. The, look, the neo-Keynesian theory that you spend, that you mustn't uh, cut uh, public expenditure uh, when you're uh, in recession, uh, that's a beautiful theory but it bears no relation to the evidence to reality. As the 1981 budget showed, the economy started growing then and continued growing for the rest of the 1980s. So it goes without saying, but I'll just confirm it. You dismiss talk of a double dip being induced by these uh, modest cuts we've seen this week and ones which are in prospect. There's no way those cuts or the ones in prospect can cause a double dip. If the world economy goes belly up, then we could have a double dip. But what we're doing here, there's no way that that would cause it. Lord Lawson, Margaret Thatcher's second Chancellor. After lunch, we had the ritual of the annual uh, moving and seconding of the speeches on the Loyal Address, which is what the Queen's speech is called. Uh, Peter Lilly, ex-Cabinet Minister, plus Don Foster, Lib Dem uh, MP for Bath, uh, much mocked by uh, all and sundry, nice mood, and then to the serious business of the day, in which it fell to David Cameron as the new Prime Minister, still a bit surprising to hear oneself describing him as that, defending his programme of legislation. The idea that for every problem there is a bottomless pit of public money, that for every situation there's a government solution, for every issue there is a Whitehall initiative, it ends up with an economy that's nearly bankrupt, a society that's broken and a political system that's bust. That's why this coalition has come together, because this country needs strong, stable government to sort out the mess that they have made. They gave us big spending, we will bring good housekeeping. They trusted in bureaucracy, we will trust in community. They governed in the party interest, we will govern in the national interest. This Queen's speech, 
this Queen's speech marks an end to the years of recklessness and big government and the beginning of the years of responsibility and good government. It takes the deficit head on. It shows the world that Britain is reopening for business. It tackles the causes of our social problems. It means better schools for our children, real hope for those out of work, a stronger NHS for everyone. And it means a Parliament that belongs to the people, not the politicians. It means a new start for Britain, and I commend it to the House. Very competent, rousing speech, I thought. Uh, Funny in places, serious in places. And good Cameron uh, feature this. He's quite graceful, uh, unlike Gordon Brown. Not present today, perhaps he should have been, uh, but very Gordon Brown that he wasn't. uh, Didn't do graceful very well. Before that, Labour's stand-in leader, Harriet Harman, had spoken. Uh, Never a woman to miss a political opportunity. She made clear her party's opposition to a change in the law so that 55% of MPs, not a simple majority, would be needed to bring down a government and trigger election. But she saved the best barb of a witty speech for the Lib Dems. And we object to the Lib Dem request that they should keep the public funding that goes to opposition Now, some say that the Liberal Democrats like to be all things to all people, but even they can't be both in government and in opposition. They can't fudge this one. They are in government. They can't claim short money. Now, people are familiar with the notion of clinging on to the trappings of power, but the Lib Dems are the first party to seek to cling on to the trappings of opposition. Good joke, that one. And David Cameron asked a good question uh, when he spoke. Why isn't Harriet Harman standing for the Labour leadership? A good thought there. Right, uh, the end of a busy day then. But I found time in the middle of it to go to the uh, annual Speaker's reception in the magnificence of Speaker's House. Uh, As a parliamentary greybeard, I've begun to be invited to these things in recent years. Indeed, I think I can reveal that uh, Speaker Burkow at the reception referred to me as the Gandalf of the press gallery. Whatever that means... Anyway, it was a good uh, bash, lots of people there. Uh, I spoke to uh, several MPs with interesting things to say. Diane Abbott won't mind me uh, reporting that she thinks if she can get 33 nominations, she's going to do very well in the fight for Labour leadership. And I suspect she's right, but 33 is a lot of names when you've only got uh, 255 to share among uh, 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 six candidates. Uh, another woman Labour MP, whom I better not identified, said she didn't expect to get re-elected. But what she did after the nomination process, she bought lunch for all her rivals in her constituency, which I'm not going to identify either, and said, look, how are we going to fight this election? Are we going to have clean, fair rules? Leave the expenses stuff out of it. And they all agreed to leave the expenses stuff out of it, which might have embarrassed her, might have lost her a seat, but it didn't. Good for her. So there we have it, another new parliament. Uh, Mr. Speaker said in his private remarks, I'm sure he said this publicly too, that he hopes this is a parliament which will restore the battered reputation of the political class. Um, on all sides of the political divide. I expect we can agree upon that. This is Mike White with the Guardian's Daily Podcast.